In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, I must say, everybody who's got home looks extraordinarily happy, and I imagine the Carmelites are having a martini now on all the rosaries and pullovers and pajamas that they've sold. I'm so glad it went well. It was so worrying yesterday when the weather was not looking too good because without the sun, it would have been hard to make such a spiritual pilgrimage. I don't know why I've always found this place thrilling, and I don't really mind myself when people come and go out like that and talk, because it's really a prayer. And some of you almost had tears in your eyes with joy, as I have often, in just seeing history in reality. One glorious man from New York had tears in his eyes and a pullover of some sort that he bought, which he couldn't get in New York. So I do hope we'll go on with the retreat now. Thomas More would have been thrilled that you had had that outing. And I put the picture of Sir Thomas More there. It used to hang in my little house on the Isles of Scilly when I lived there for eight years. I gave it to Bob, and Bob brought it to America. I'd forgotten about it, and he had it in his office, and then he took it in his car today and suddenly realized it was St. Thomas More, so he brought it to me again. And Father, very kindly, said we could show it. I don't know what we're going to do with it, I, but it is a Holbein second sketch, and it is a, there's a whole history attached to it. So as we have it here, I thought I'd just put it in the chapel. I hope it doesn't clash with the sort of red Indian coloring we've got. Well, now as to the retreat itself, this is terribly important, though you probably will fall asleep having just got home from your outing. We are, did think about Thomas More and prayer, and I did stress to you that he decided to be a layman, but only when he had learned to pray daily in that way. I bet a day of his life never went by when he didn't put his forehead at least once on the ground. Whether you do it with like yoga or whether you do it like the Mohammedans or whether you are too old to put your forehead on the ground, an adoration of God is the only answer to the seven stages of man. If you can't do that, then Shakespeare's poem is a disaster of people showing off until they're without teeth or anything. And that's rather a horrid thought. If you have God, then... I find getting old becomes uh, really a most delightful process because something happens to you. Well, now, Thomas More made that quite clear. Never, as he wrote it in the tower before he died, never let a day pass, therefore. Now, supposing we've got a lot of very famous people here, three or four of the FBI, two speechwriters for the Republican side, a hell of a lot of critics on the Democratic side, and we've got all sorts of wonderful people. Just supposing your people in the office knew that you put your forehead on the ground. 
they wouldn't sack you, they'd be scared stiff of you ever since. <laughs> because this is the truth. Nobody knew Thomas More did this. Nobody knew he was a saint or thought he was a saint. But the odd thing is, when he decided to become a layman, he really meant loving God so much to carry God into a different world than monks can do or priests can do. He chose not to be a priest and he chose eventually not to be a monk. And he did it, and most of us, I'm sure, at heart have the same feeling. We want to save ourselves. We don't want to be in a dangerous occasion of sin. If you become a layman or a laywoman, then you've simply got to take risks. You go into a monastery very largely, so you won't have those risks. If you uh, lock the doors up like the Carmelites, you may, you'll see God and you'll be able to help the world in a wonderful way by prayer, like the Carthusians we're in here praying for you. But you won't be able to reach people uh, because you cut off any dangers. So that on the whole, in the monastery, there are no dangers and uh, everything's very carefully regulated and there are many people who love it and should do it, but Thomas More decided no. And I'll bet there are many here in this chapel who early in their lives, at one time or another, either thought they would be a priest or nun, or even tried it. There may be one or two who actually volunteered and failed. With Catholics on the whole, and many converts, nearly half the great priests of the last century were all converts, it's in everybody's heart to love God and to want to serve God most fully. Thomas More's extraordinary because he was one of the very first who suddenly almost was told by God that he was running away from life. And so I want to, if I can find the place, this is the famous thing he wrote in the Charter House after he'd read the life of Picus, Earl of Mirandola, that describes his life right through to the moment the axe knocked his head off. For as it is a thing right hard to touch pitch and not get defiled, or put flax on the fire and yet keep it from burning, or to keep a serpent in thy bosom and yet be safe from stinging, to put young men with young women without danger of foul fleshly desires, so it is hard for any person, either man or woman, in great worldly wealth and much prosperity, so to withstand the suggestions of the devil and the occasions given by the world, that they keep themselves from deadly desire of ambition and glory. Every one of us knows that, even those who haven't got money. Whereupon there followeth, if a man falls in this, a whole flood of unhappy mischief, arrogance, arrogant manner, high solemn carriage, despising of the poor in word and countenance, unpleasant and disdainful of behavior, ravin, extortion, oppression, hatred and cruelty. That will come when you surrender to these things and they're so dangerous. So Moore felt, I won't risk it. So he went to the charter house. Now in many a good man, my cousin, coming into great authority, turning in his mind the peril of such occasions of pride, is so troubled therewith. Some are so afraid that even in the day of prosperity they fall into the night's fear of pusillanimity and fear, that they might misuse themselves. 
leave things undone which they might have done well, and so mistrusting to aid and help God in keeping them straight in their temptations, give way to the devil and fall into the opposite temptation, whereby, through a faint heart, they quit their good works in which they were well occupied, under pretext as it seems to them of a humble heart and meekness and the serving of God in silence and contemplation, they unconsciously seek their own ease and earthly rest, and with this God is not well content. There is a danger to run away and make religion and good works and even a vocation and to go and live in enclosures or alone. To run away from the world could be feeble. It could be something God doesn't want of you. And Thomas More, of all people, when he was so good-looking, so clever, had such a following, thought when he went into the charter house that he was pleasing God. And when he read Picus, made, he became his own master, More decided to do the same. So he walked out. Erasmus, who knew him awfully well on other ways, but didn't know him well spiritually, Erasmus was an exclaustrated monk, illegitimate, very clever, very witty, more loved him, they loved each other, but a very, very dubious man to follow in religion. Erasmus said when Moore left, he would rather be a pure husband than an impure priest, suggesting that Moore left the charter house because he simply was craving to marry. I don't think that's the least true. Moore left the charter house and didn't become a monk or a priest because he felt he was running away from life and that God wouldn't want it. And I believe many lay people have to face this thing. If you're a layman in the world, you have to take risks, and you're only safe if once a day, at least wise, you adore God putting your head to the ground in whichever way suits you best. So more left, and the next thing we get, of course, is that he married. He was 25, and he wanted a wife, and he had these dear friends, the Colts, who lived on the east side of London, very rich people, and there were 18 in the family. There's one gentleman on the retreat who's been there to see where Moore made his first marriage. And I've been there too, and it's wonderful. There's a tomb with all the 18 little children in brass. When they're dead, they're all squashed together like sardines. He's got a picture of it next to his bed. It's a lovely church. Well, Moore went there, and there were these two girls left. All the others of the family had married. There was one of 17 and one of 16. And Moore married the elder of the two, Jane. Married, he married Meg, and they went and lived in London. And, and he, he was once a Lutheran. And what Roper wrote was this. For he thought, he met these two girls. For he thought the younger, the fairest and best favored. Yet when he considered that it would be grief and shame also to the elder to see her younger sister married before her, then of a certain pity framing this, his fancy towards her soon after he married the elder. Now that's all he said. The whole of history turns on what Roper knew, and he couldn't have known it from anybody else than Meg, and Meg could have known it from nobody else but her father if he told her. 
So how true it is, I don't know. But now this is what Mr. Jasper Ridley, uh, this is the great historian, lapsed lawyer, this is what he made of that. It was a young woman who finally caused Moore to take the decision about his career. He knew the family of Mr. John Colt, gentleman of the village of Netherall near Harlow. Colt, who had married three times, had 18 children, including two daughters who in 1504 were averaged 17 and 16, all that's correct, and were both unmarried. Moore fell in love with the younger sister. Roper didn't say that. He said the younger was the fairer and more favored. He thereupon proposed to the elder sister, Jane. He was accepted and married her. Roper writes that he married Jane because he thought it would be a disgrace for her, he didn't say anything about that, if the younger sister married before she did. He never said more thought it would be a disgrace. He'd, all he used was the word pity, which didn't mean pity in his day, uh, that we know now, more called his old father a pitiful man. It meant sympathetic. Here is Ridley's comment. It was not a solution which would have appealed to every man, but it was a satisfactory compromise for more. The charms of the younger sister were distracting him from the law, from Greek, from the monastic life, and were causing him to have grave doubts as to whether he would always be able to resist the temptations of the flesh. Don't know where he got all that from. He must have a dirty mind. Or he went to a dirty law school. He felt unable to make the sacrifice which a vow of chastity would have entailed. He hadn't, he's given up to taking the vow long before. But he could at least make a lesser sacrifice by marrying a girl whom he did not love, not the sister for whom he lusted. Isn't it wonderful how, how our modern world gets, comes out? The unselfishness of his decision must surely be admired even by 20th century readers who may think it was mistaken. He's been reading soft porn or something. I don't know what he's <laughs> up to. But all that, we are being told that the younger daughter was fairest and best favored, but when he considered that it might hurt the elder daughter, he changed his mind and married her. She was only 17. She may have improved to look at. <laughs> History tells us she was very pretty. Further, it tells us that she was very unhappy when she first married him because she lived in the country all her life with her 18 other children. And more, of course, had just come out of a Carthusian monastery. Indeed, Mr. Ridley has the need to sort of take a story which Erasmus tells about a certain gentleman having a row with his wife and applies it to more with no authority. Erasmus was always telling happy stories. At any rate, it ended up a most lovely marriage. Erasmus stayed in the house, loved her, Jane. Jane loved him, and when she died so sadly and suddenly, Erasmus said that she would have been the perfect companion for the whole of his life. So all that nonsense that Ridley has written, it suggests that Moore was sort of either lusting for something or that he was sexually perverted. Out of five lines written on the authority of his son-in-law, years later. No, the marriage was wonderful. 
and they came to Bucklesbury. They lived there next to the mansion house in London where the Lord Mayor lives. He lived there uh, with Jane, and of course, unfortunately, um, she died in childbirth, um, having given him four children. And she died quite young when Meg was only five. So then Moore did an extraordinary thing and went straight away and married again. Absolutely, talking about uh, having his own mind, or God's mind, Erasmus tells us all his friends advised him not to, but Thomas More was quite certain that he rushed off and got married within three weeks. And now he married an elderly lady. She wasn't all that old. She was young by our standards. She was about 40. I think she was a little less. She was a widow. She worked for the wool trade. Her husband had been a great man in the wool guilds, and Thomas More was the lawyer for the wool trade, and he married her. And so um, we, we have his confessor's word for it. Moore didn't look like a saint at all. When he was dead, some poor woman wrote saying how this wonderful man had been beheaded and wanted consoling, and this old parish priest, Father Bouge, wrote this to her to cheer her up. Thomas More, he was my parishioner in London. I christened him two goodly children. I buried his first wife. And within a month after, he came to me on a Sunday at night late, and there he brought me a dispensation to be married next Monday without the bans being asked. And as I understand, she is yet alive. That's his second wife. This Mr. Moore was my ghostly child. In his confession to be so pure, so clean, with great study, deliberation, and devotion, I never heard any such. A gentleman of learning, both in law, art, and divinity, having no man like him now alive of the layman. Item, a gentleman of great soberness and gravity, one chief of the king's council. Item, a gentleman of little refection and marvelous diet. Now that's what the confessor said, who had known more, and uh, you ought to hear what Ridley's got to say about it that he made fun of his second wife, she was old and ugly, he made jokes about her at table, all totally lie. I don't know where he got all this from. Actually, the second Mrs. Moore was a charmer. Alice, Mrs. Middleton, she was middle-aged. He, he, we know, married her. He had four little children, the eldest just five. And he was a member of parliament and a lawyer. What was he to do? He loved her. The only joke he made of her was in Latin. He said she was nec bella, nec puella. She was neither beautiful nor a girl. It doesn't sound too wicked. Well, it sounds nice in Latin, but they loved each other. First of all, he taught her, and she was very obstinate, and she was a wonderful housewife. He praised all she did, and how she loved his children and brought them up, and they loved her. She brought a daughter of hers along with her to join the family. Alice Middleton, and she was an extraordinary person. Thomas More taught her to play the flute and all sorts of instruments. She practiced every day, so when he, when he got home at night, they could sit down and play a little flute together. She made marvelous jokes. She once came back to him and said, now I've been to confession, and I've confessed nagging you, and now I'm going to start again. <laughs> More thought it was marvelous, he wrote. They had endless jokes. 
And there's one very touching thing, because he was, he become a layman, uh, that he did write this, it was her, she, she turns up in many of his stories, and it, even in prison they loved each other. Here's one thing he wrote when he was in the Tower of London. This wife, when she saw that Sir Thomas More, her husband, had no wish to grow greatly upwards in the world, nor neither would labor for office of authority, and over that forsook a right worshipful room when it was offered him, she fell in hand with him, and all two rated him for asking, and asked him, What will you do that you desire not to put forth yourself as other folk do? Will you sit by the fire and make goslings in the ashes with a stick as children do? Apparently children used to sit by the fire and draw goslings with a stick. And that's what the ex-monk wanted to do. He was married, he loved his second wife. He teased her for putting on two tight dresses. He said that her tummy was a bit too big for them. When he was in the tower, she came to see him and she said, she said I don't know how I couldn't sleep in this cell with the door locked. And he said, it's funny because when she's home, she locks the door from the inside and locks all the windows at night. I can't see what difference it makes whether the door's locked from the outside or the inside. But they got on extremely well together. Where Mr. Ridley's got the idea that Lady Dame Alice was an unpleasant person, she was charming. And he praises her in his letters. They're all out to make out that Maud was trying in some strange way, was abnormal, when what he was trying to do was to bring up a very devoted family. He didn't want any more children, but his second wife, he loved her. And he got the bishop to give leave not to have the bands. Well, they lived in the middle of London for quite a long time. And then you come to this wonderful thing that more became what you and I are, what I'm not. When you're a lay person, if you are going to do your work properly, you're totally and entirely busy. All his friends were priests, all lawyers or lords, and he was a young lawyer. He did dirty work all day for Erasmus, who'd lost his luggage. Erasmus was, had all his money stolen at the customs house in Dover. He had to row over to the Archbishop of Canterbury to get Erasmus's pension. Erasmus lived in Italy and in Basel and in, in the Netherlands. So poor Moore was endlessly running errands for, like lawyers do. That's why the lawyers on the retreat look so sick. You do endless sort of dirty work for fools. But no, Moore was, he was not a priest, so really he took the lowest rank and he knew it. He, when he became decided not to be a priest, he took that wonderful text from the gospel, there are, as our Saviour says in the house of his father, many mansions. And happy shall be he that shall have the grace to dwell even in the lowest. As long as I get into the lowest, I'll be all right. So he started his extraordinary career as a very ordinary man. Nobody knew till long after he was beheaded that there was any question of his praying. He did it all in secret. His hair shirt was in secret. He fasted. He never showed anybody. No one ever referred to him as a saint. It was only his children, when he'd gone, that began to read his letters. So he became a totally ordinary man. And his great pride was that he was, became a first, his first job was to be under-sheriff of London. Now, under-sheriff in English law, not like your sheriffs in Texas, he, he was a legal, it was a legal appointment. 
he was the police court magistrate for London. You can see the place where his court met every Thursday. And he tried drunks and cut purses and uh, poor people who'd, in little things, uh, not a few suicides. He knew more about the seamy life of a town than anybody else. He wasn't saying the Hail Holy Queen all day. No, he got up in the morning at two, not because he wanted not to sleep, but because the sun rose at three. We don't realize in the old days, you could, they had no electric light. The fish market opened at three in the morning. Directly the first glimmer of dawn appeared, then you all had to get up or you couldn't finish your work in the day. Moore got up at two, just across the road from the barge was the church which is still there of St. Stephen's and there he went to Mass and served Mass. When people say to you today as a layman or laywoman, will you read? If you possibly can, some people have got goiters and some people have to take tranquilizers, but it's, those who can ought to realize that this is a way you become a saint by taking part in the liturgy where you're asked and the same giving out communion. Moore served at Mass. He didn't sing very well, though he had a good voice in court, but he always went to Mass. When he got to Chelsea, when he was richer, he built the Lady Altar, which is still there, and that's where his Jane is buried. But the funny thing is that Mr. Ridley makes out his second wife to be awful. Erasmus's letters to her, that he didn't like her much at first. She was a great change from little Jane, who was only 20, to get this widow, he called her a harpy to start with, but, uh, but after a while they were sending love messages to each other and Erasmus was kissing uh, Mrs. Moore's portrait as, she couldn't, as he couldn't see her. And he even uh, hoped she'd live for many years and Mrs. Old Dame Alice said yes to nag my husband. They're the most charming pair, I bet they're nagging together now. They were all mostly jokes. So we get more quite ordinary. Then you get, in the beginning of Utopia, you get that marvelous letter which I read last year, and you can't beat it. If you've got Utopia, it may be published in it. This is what he wrote at the beginning when he first wrote Utopia. He wrote a letter to Giles. It was a foreword, really. They, in those days, it was quite common to write a letter at the beginning of a book. It's a marvelous letter from a businessman making money as a lawyer and as a, later as a judge and with a family, he put, how be it to the dispatching of so little business my other cares and troubles did leave me almost less than any leisure. While I daily bestow my time on law matters, some to plead, some to hear, some as an arbitrator with my judgment to determine, some as an umpire or judge, with my sentence to discuss, while I go one way to visit a friend, another about my private affairs, while I spend almost every day away from home with others, and the remainder at home among my own, I leave myself, I mean my book, no time. For when I come home, I must commune with my wife, chat with my children, and talk with my servants all which things I reckon and account among business, for as much as they must of necessity be done, and done must they needs be, unless a man will be a stranger in his own house. How many of us 
the danger is we become a stranger in our own house. Thomas More regarded that to play with his children, to talk to his wife, to look after his servants, that to be first if you're going to be really a father of a family. And in any wise a man must so fashion and order his condition and so appoint and dispose of himself that he be merry, jocund, pleasant with those whom neither nature hath provided and, or chance hath made or himself hath chosen to be his friends and companions. So that with too much gentle behavior he does not mar them and by too much sufferance of his servants make them his masters. Among these things now rehearsed stealeth away the day, the month, and the year. Now I find that Moore's article, putting showing, because he, he loved writing, but he never had time when he finished Utopia, he nearly killed himself doing it with all those activities to carry out. So we'll go on thinking tonight of the last talk about his children and what he taught them, his homework with them, and then tomorrow we'll think of his death and of his place in the world today and how we could copy him. <laughs>